to introduce myself now because she's done such a fabulous job. <laughs> um, I suppose I'm a bit of a hybrid, as you can tell. Essentially, I, um, I did a French degree and then an international journalism degree at City um, as a master's. And then I stayed in international news gathering, mostly. I mean, every job I looked for had to be in international news gathering. I really wasn't very interested in, in domestic news. And um, worked my way through, really, till I was a news editor, which was really where I was most happy, I think, because I like to come up with stories and work out how to get you know, particularly difficult um, you know, pictures out of the Congo and things like that. In fact, um, I've been an academic now for nine years, and I still have an adrenaline, you know, adrenaline pumping when a big story breaks. But I think that Haiti was actually the first one when I thought, "Thank God it's not me." <laughs> having to get those pictures out, having to work out how on earth you get pictures out when there's no electricity or anything else. And for the first time, I kind of thought, "Nope, I've passed this mantle on, and this isn't my job anymore." However, I'm still interested. And people ask me all the time, well, how did you come up with this uh, particular topic? Well, I think the first reason was that um, when I entered the academy, I found a mountain of literature about foreign correspondence. <clears throat> but nobody had actually talked about um, fixers, which I couldn't understand, because I thought, well, you know, when it's me, uh, whenever I had to go abroad, that was the first thing that I looked for, a good fixer um, on a topic. And the second reason was actually... When I was in Beirut with, um, I think we'll make him anonymous as we're being recorded, an anonymous, anonymous ITN correspondent, and I was the producer, and um, this person actually accused me of putting his life in danger by hiring a bad fixer. So this made me think very carefully, because I had to deconstruct how I'd found this man, all the different ways that I had, had gone through checking out who this person was, asking if you know people who'd worked with him to make sure that he was safe actually made me think an awful lot about fixers. So when I came into the academy, I think my first problem was, well, how do I find references to fixers? Because not many people seem to have written about it at all. So I had to go hunting. So the first place that I actually found a reference to fixers, funnily enough, was in fiction, <laughs> in a comic book <laughs> called The Fixer which told the typical tale of a, you know, a rascal from Sarajevo making tons of money any which way that he could. It was you know, interesting, colourful and all the rest of it, but not particularly helpful. Um, my next uh, foray into finding a fixer actually was in literature as well. And I came across this book called The Warlord's Son, written by a former foreign correspondent. And at last I felt, well, somebody understands where I'm coming from. This particular passage just sums it up, really. He, he's, he was downright ashamed of having made a blunder as egregious as hiring the wrong fixer. Fixers are the first line of defence against cheaters and ne'er-do-wells, and the weapon of choice, apart from Marlboros and American dollars, against obstructive officials and checkpoint trolls. The best ones know who to talk to and where to find them, and can decipher the Sanskrit of local politics and all its petty grudges. So this was essentially the kind of fixer that I remembered when I was trying to persuade a supervisor um, that it was a good topic when I couldn't just simply say, well, I know because I've been there. <laughs> I had to, you know, I, I wasn't able to say, for example, well, in Pedelty's seminal book on foreign correspondence, he says, because at the time I didn't have those references. So I went hunting for them. And what I found in my literature review purely looking for references to fixers were the following 
excuse me for the list, but uh, that's how it's come out. Um, I found out that they could be a translator, a driver, a wheeler dealer, an assistant with contacts, but they were never described as strictly editorial. And this is a belief that's needed for the myth of the lone correspondent, and that comes out in the biographies. In Padelty's seminal book, however, on foreign correspondence in El Salvador, um, he dismissed them completely as logistical aids. Now, this may be, in fairness, partly because he was looking at print journalists rather than television correspondents, but this was how they seemed to him. They were just helpers. In Hess and Kalb, they were bodyguards. Interestingly, in Hannerts, they were a polymorphous group of local helpers, and that, I think, was really my problem, because they were so you know, polymorphous that it was, they were going to be hard to pin down. And again, a fluid body of helpers who are critically important from Ericsson and Hamilton. The Committee to Protect Journalists made a new category of media worker in 2006 because they needed a category to put some of these you know, fatalities and statistics into. So they described a media worker as someone who provides expertise, translation, research and contacts. Then eventually, a little bit later, I found a Howard a Tumber and Webster chapter in a book in which he said that good fixers made the difference between successful and unsuccessful coverage. This was a really good chapter. It was more descriptive than analytical, but it was helpful to my argument. And also, in 2007, I found the first um, journal article about fixers, and this was, strictly speaking, though, about local translators in the Iraq war. So I then went diving into this great uh, mountain of literature on international news gathering and decided to look at the challenges that face uh, foreign correspondents. So at the macro level, there are political economy issues related to the bulk gathering of news by agencies, um, done by people like Boyd Barrett and Patterson, etc. Obviously, globalisation is the great big elephant in the room, either from a the, you know, more negative point of view of media imperialism and one-way news flows, research gathered under the global dominance paradigm and written about by people like Thusu, Rantanen and Shrebeni. Or there was the more optimistic wing that talked about the global public sphere debates, transformative democracy, transnational broadcasting leading to transnational communities of like-minded citizens, People like Ingrid Volkmer and Brian McNair are writing in, in that sphere. At the meso or mid-level, the things that are challenging to correspondence are changes to technology, constant deadlines, 24-hour news cycles that have totally modified the nature of journalism practice. And there are also, obviously, the massive challenges from citizen journalism and user-generated content. And then at the micro level, because essentially I'm looking at a relational issue between a correspondent and a fixer, the correspondent is impacted by people with whom he or she works, with whom they work on the road, the team and the competitors. And there's just one um, sort of subgroup of this literature that I wanted to look at, which is this mythology business. And part of the foreign correspondent mythology is that they are loan operators, and that's what I wanted to challenge you know, the, the myth of the correspondent is that they face challenges and dangers by themselves. And this is evident from countless biographies and also from the many profiles in, in uh, books like Philip Knightley's First Casualty, where you've got all the daring-do correspondents of yore who, you know, travelled by um, donkey to, you know, Sudan to cover wars, etc. Well, Meryl Aldrich has written quite a lot about mythology, and she said that for your average reporter... 
they like to think that you know their myths are about lone hunters, larger-than-life individuals who seek excitement and an opportunity and capacity to work autonomously. Well, this myth can be hard to argue in many humdrum journalism jobs, you know, the kind that we see more and more that creep in with journalism. Um, and therefore, the myth of the correspondent is important. And Aldridge said, no doubt the lionization of foreign correspondents is rooted in their guaranteed contact with the exotic, as well as their relative freedom of action in relation to autonomy. Because autonomy is something that is just constantly there. That's what, I suppose, all journalists yearn for, but get possibly less as time goes on. So my central research question for this PhD was, to what extent and how is the relationship between a correspondent and a fixer important to international television news gathering? Because I was stating that I thought it was fairly central, that, that lots of this literature that I was reading was essentially overlooking the fact that correspondents don't just bounce into countries ignorant and say, ring London and say, tell me what's happening. This can happen, obviously, but they actually tap into stories because of local people. And it, it, it's kind of crazy to ignore the fact that there is a massive relationship going on that can be ad hoc but isn't always between correspondents and fixers. So the sub-questions were, why are fixers important? What is it that correspondents lack that they feel they need them? How are they shown to be important? What influence do they have on stories? And what's the significance of this influence? Does it actually matter or not? And what does the relationship reveal about the political economy of news gathering, the changing context of foreign news production, and the evolution of the role of the foreign correspondent, something that the Reuters Institute has been looking into in some papers recently? In terms of theoretical frameworks, and I'm sorry if this isn't all your, your particular bag, um, I was interested in a couple of things here. I wanted to examine news production. I'm very interested in how people work, which is essentially sociology. And it's from the sociology of journalism tradition, which is people like Michael Shudson, Simon Cottle, Stephen Rees. And examining news production can tell you all kinds of things, and it can be seen as a sort of middle ground between larger spheres of political economy or cultural studies. And then I was also interested in Pierre Bourdieu. It's, he's a French sociologist, and it's amazing how many people writing about journalism come across him eventually, and people go, oh my God, not that strange Frenchman, why are you bothering? But actually, he, does, he speaks to journalism because he talks about power, and he talks about things that we're interested in. So he thought the journalistic field was a powerful field because the players possess high volumes of power. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that journalists possess high, high volumes of power, but they mix with people who have a lot of power in the fields sort of adjacent fields of politics and the economy. So I wanted to look at what is important in the journalistic field, what is it about the field of foreign correspondence that matters. And the other uh, part of uh, Bourdieu's series that I was interested in was cultural capital. This is the concept about what equals worth or power within a field, discipline and a working relationship. And these were concepts I found completely fascinating and I wish I'd known about them 30 years ago when I was in newsrooms <laughs> when I could have worked out where the cultural capital was and, and worked out more adroitly how to actually source it and make it work for myself. So he breaks this down into three different um, sections. There's embodied capital, 
And that is the capital that one has in one's person. Those are in the form of skills and self-improvement. So if you adapt that for, say, a foreign correspondent, it could be in terms of um, their language abilities, their abilities with narrative. You know, it might even be in their you know, striking good looks or their mellifluous tones. They're things you can improve and, and you carry them with yourself. If you go to your next job, you take them with you. Objectified capital is one's capital that can be judged by output. So for a TV correspondent, that's going to be your stories. And institutionalized capital will be a person's efforts are credentialed by external markers, such as through prizes, awards, or promotion. So at the end of this, you could say, for example, this particular foreign correspondent is powerful because you know, that last story on, on, um, on Haiti was fantastic and it won, you know, a large national or international prize. So my aim was to see how reporters and fixers barter their skills for a TV goal and work together for their separate um, results. So I did my data gathering back in 2007-8. This was a part-time PhD, and hence why it's taken a little bit of time to finish it. Um, And it mainly involved semi-structured qualitative interviews lasting for an hour each. And what I was really doing was trying to burrow into exactly how people gathered stories and how they came about and what the interaction was with fixers. So I interviewed 20 TV foreign correspondents, 10 from the UK and 10 from Australia. I had initially had a notion that I was going to make comparisons there, but in fact, that, you know, it, it didn't really stand up. They were essentially very similar in background, the UK and Australian media scapes. So I did, from the correspondents from the UK were from the BBC, ITN and Sky, people like Bill Neely, Jeremy Bowen, etc. Um, in Australia, I did the national broadcaster, the ABC, and correspondents from Channel 7 and Channel 9, And then because I was looking for correspondence with lots of foreign experience, I also did two Australians working for CNN because they had consciously gone to CNN in order to get more foreign corresponding. I interviewed five fixers from the world's trouble spots, two from Iraq, plus fixers from Gaza, Jakarta and Kosovo, and two senior journalists for particular information. One, because I didn't know that much about Sky in comparison to the other... um, companies and also I had a long interview with the BBC's Baghdad bureau chief because I wanted to understand how the bureau worked. So their answers are not counted in with the foreign correspondent's answers, however. Along with this, I wanted to make Iraq a case study because my hypothesis was that in Iraq, fixers have become much more important because it's now so dangerous to work there that fixers have, you know, in some ways taken over. So at the time that I did this study, the International Federation of Journalism called Iraq the world's deadliest country for journalists and media staff, and there had been 284 deaths since 2003. And the difference I was looking for is, do fixers help get access to the streets? Are they a way of journalists getting out there, even if it's vicariously? What is different about news gathering in Iraq? and the relationship between the central players, and I wanted to find out if Iraq was effectively a game-changer in this relationship. To sum up briefly, the media scene in Iraq at the time, um, the international media, sort of transnational broadcasters that were there, were CNN, the BBC, Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, APTN, and Reuters. 
the American nets actually pulled out at the end of 2008 to 9, but at the time they were still there. ABC Australia and the commercial channels 7, 9 and 10, plus the British commercial channels ITN and Sky, were no longer based there, but they did do occasional embed trips or one-off visits. And there was a massive argument going on at the time about whether journalists needed to be there. And this was down to danger, costs, lack of viewer interest. Being at the dateline became very contentious with the media. And, and you might remember there was a big spat between Raggy Omar and John Simpson, where Raggy Omar from Al Jazeera was saying, well, you lot have just got to admit that fixers are doing all the work and you're not, that you're not, you know, you're in the green line, you're in the green zone, you're not actually in that much danger. And John, John Simpson came out with both guns loaded to say that this wasn't true. So Bill Neely at the time from ITN, a company that wasn't uh, there, said this to me at the time, and it sums up one of the essential issues. I don't think any of us in the media can really hold our heads up and be proud of our coverage of Iraq, because it is so very difficult to report other than second-hand there. I don't think any of us really do it properly. And it was this notion of second-hand reporting that I was looking into. This is just for background. I'll, I'll whip through this. Um, the BBC and CNN news gathering budgets um, in two th- around 2008 and 9. The BBC had $501 million and 41 overseas bureaus. And CNN had $687 million and 26 overseas bureaus. They both had bureaus in the red zone, so that wasn't the tightly controlled green zone that people thought they were in. And they had, as you can see, massive numbers of people, which have no doubt been scaled back by now. But at the time, those were um, you know, huge resources of correspondents, drivers, fixers, security advisors, etc. Um, and they wouldn't admit to any prices that I could get out of them of how much it was costing. And did CNN not tell you how many uh, security guards they had? What did I put? How do I get back? It was 30 to 40 people excluding. No, they didn't. Yes. Well, I mean, as I'll go on to show you, security guards had a massive part in deciding what stories were covered. Um, fixers at the BBC were from all ethnic Iraq groups. Most had been employed on contracts since 2003, but the occasional one had been taken on since. As you can imagine, they said they couldn't do any positive vetting, so the fixers tended to be friends of friends. They looked for people with street smarts, excellent English, preferably but not necessarily with journalistic experience, with a sense of humour, that seemed to be a particularly British thing, and who were steady. They said they were not looking for anybody flaky who will chase unlikely exclusives but give everybody a heart attack in the meantime when they had to go looking for them. And they played down the work very much in phrases like most BBC work was bread and butter facts of stuff which is done on the phone. Now over at CNN, I had a slightly skewed view because the main person who was telling me this information was Michael Ware, who's an extremely colourful journalist who's been out there since 2003 and who had an investigative brief rather than an everyday news brief. But he was extremely aware of the power of fixers and he always gave credit to them. He said that he brought his team of Iraqis with him from Time magazine when he moved to CNN. And he was looking for a questioning mind, scepticism, a hunger for truth and anger at obfuscation. 
so very different values he reckoned he was after. He'd said he'd had to relocate four fixers to the US, the UK and Australia when things became too difficult for them. Generally in the Office for News, fixers were from all ethnic, religious, political backgrounds, including former Saddam people and most were university educated, which is very different to the kind of ad hoc fixers that people pick up elsewhere. And this is Michael Ware again. Because these fellows have been with me for so long, if they want to sell me out, they could have sold me out. Some of them have literally died in my cause. Two of them have been tortured because of me. Several of them have been abducted because of me. Which gives you some feeling of what it's like to be taken on by these foreign correspondents. In terms of news generation, interestingly, two of the journalists, um, Glover was the name I gave to um, to the bureau manager, said that fixers were their eyes and ears and that they'd be blind without them. These were just phrases that kept popping up. Andrew North from the BBC and Michael Ware from CNN also described the news production process with fixers as organic. At the BBC, everybody went to the crucial early news meeting, including the fixers, and the fixers related what was happening in the media, what their contacts had told them, what they'd found out in the streets, and what stringers in other cities were saying. The reporters from their side would relate what the diplomatic sources were saying, the government, the military, the wires, London and other journalists and other journalist fixers. Stories were discussed, selected and prioritised and then more checking was done, joint decisions were taken and the security people went out and did a recce before deciding whether it was going to be covered or not. Over at CNN, Michael Ware described how he once got his best exclusive, which led to a string of exclusives. He relates how for months a fixer had combed his old National Service friends and commanders until he found ex-regime people who went on to become the leadership of the Iraqi insurgency. This led to Ware's introduction to al-Qaeda and exclusive video stories. Ware received the first suicide bomber video, and in his colourful way, he said... It wasn't put onto the internet, it wasn't given to an Arab channel, and it wasn't given to an Iraqi journalist, but was given to some bumbling hack from the back blocks of Brisbane. It never ceased to amaze me, and that came through my Iraqis, ultimately the same path that led me to stand in an al-Qaeda training camp in Iraq and be with them as they fired missiles on American Marines. He has a flair for the dramatic. But um, amazingly, his, you know, his tales do always stack up. In terms of access to the streets, uh, the BBC and CNN reporters do go out and they prefer to go out whenever they can. Michael Ware said he was extremely worried about endangering people that were filmed who would then become targets. When it was safer for the Iraqis to go than it was for the Westerners, but this changed and eventually it wasn't really safe for anybody to go. But when it was safer, Iraqis went, but never when the filming was close to their home. And everybody in the team had to agree that it was safe or a veto system pertained. And Iraqi fixers did, the, did lots of interviewing. The security recce in advance and the 20-minute rule was observed thereafter. So if you didn't get what you wanted in 20 minutes, you left. And much of the filming then moved inside and people just didn't film outside anymore. A lot more news gathering was done on the phone and sometimes the house was in total lockdown for days. The other thing that made it difficult to gather news was that if you ever went into the green zone to talk to the government people or NGOs, then it could take hours just to get through the security. So both sides were keen to dispel this notion of second-hand reporting. 
BBC and CNN journalists claimed that they did have control of their stories. Andrew North said, It doesn't mean to say that you're being led by fixers. Your own critical factors are still being employed, and you are still doing your job as a journalist. But it is a team job, and a producer that comes from outside will kind of get the credit in terms of their role in London. But the locally employed journalist is arguably more important because not much would happen without them. So I published my first findings, um, the sort of m- most easily quantifiable ones, um, in 2009 in the Australian Journalism Review. And the main facts in this were that all 20 correspondents said they always used fixers, except under very prescribed circumstances like embedding travelling with a company producer, which is essentially really only the BBC these days, or when language isn't a problem. So that was very different to the idea that it was a sometimes tacked-on member of the team. In television terms, because all these correspondents are from television, it was an an always um, position. 18 out of 20 felt that the role was logistical and editorial, with only two believing it was purely logistical. And that, quite interestingly, was two of the commercial reporters who both had quite an imperious kind of attitude towards fixers and what help they could provide. I don't think they were people who were really working with them or in any organic way, as the others would have said. However, that was interesting too, because really when fixers had been written about in in the academy, it was about being logistical and not editorial. 19 said they'd used fixers for language reasons, which you'd accept. In fact, all except for the BBC's Caroline Hawley, who spoke perfect Arabic, having done an Arabic degree, but still used fixers in Iraq because she thought that they were very handy for making social contacts with people she was interviewing. So even though she could understand people, and people would often translate for her and she could actually understand it, she still used them. So all cited using fixers for local knowledge, context, contacts, story ideas, logistical and safety issues. Sometimes these were ad hoc hirings, mostly, obviously never in Iraq, but mostly they would ask other journalists to recommend someone. So the capital that mattered was other journalists. You know, if if you think that you have the right kind of capital to function in your country, then you're going to look for somebody um, in another country with similar capital to yours, which I've gone on to say here. Um, If they couldn't find a useful journalist who was free to work with them, because often these foreign correspondents can pay major money um, and a local journalist is tempted to go off with them for a while to work because they can you know, finance themselves for a couple of months after that. But otherwise they had a horses-for-courses attitude. If it was a tricky political story, they might try and find a professor from the local university. If it was local demonstrations, they would ask, for, ask students to work with them. If it was community-based stuff that they were looking for, how to navigate the town, then they'd ask a taxi driver and you get two-for-one. Um, all had got exclusive story ideas from fixers, and they often went on to win major international prizes and therefore garnered more capital. Most journalists thought that they were good judges of personality and were convinced that they weren't duped or influenced. Many told tales of using dodgy characters, Hezbollah people, all kinds of you know people in Arche, but they said, I know what they were about and I use them carefully. But when I interviewed the fixers, they told stories which showed that 
you know, fixers don't always tell the truth. They hide stories. They select interviewees to make a particular group or party look better. They might say roads are blocked, and if you don't speak the language, you don't know, you know, in order to avoid danger or to avoid annoyance. Or they might say that the interview was too tired or ill to participate. And they also spoke a lot about pressure from their, com- from their communities about you know, the lines being taken on certain stories. I published the second findings from the PhD in 2010, and this was purely on Iraq um, in media war and conflict. And looking at Iraq, I said that the difference was that fixers have a much larger input into story ideas and story direction, that they were doing interviews, and sometimes they were even doing whole stories. Both Andrew North and Michael Ware talked about fixers, you know, reporting and filming whole stories, delivering them a kit of parts, and then they would voice them. Fixers' titles changed at the BBC to reflect this importance, and they became known as local producers. The fixers in Iraq got access to safety and editorial training. That's very different to ad hoc hires elsewhere in the world where they might not even get a flak jacket sometimes when they're taken into a war zone. Their local knowledge was very much appreciated by everybody and valued. They had long-term employment. I mean, some of those people have been employed in Iraq now for getting on for eight years. And they could be redeployed if they wanted to. And some have been, especially in the BBC, extremely um, you know, well redeployed into other bureaus. They're valued highly within the company. And the irony is that they could actually get external recognition for their work if they wanted it. But in Iraq, it's too dangerous. They don't want recognition for their work, which plays into um, you know, the accusations that go around about it not being foreign correspondents' work sometimes. In terms of cultural capital, basically the correspondence gained on all levels. Embodied because through this teamwork it leads to perceived and real autonomy. Working with someone helps you to behave abroad as you would at home. And there were instances where some people thought particular foreign correspondents could actually speak Arabic, even though that wasn't one of their embodied skills. They simply borrowed it, but they'd done it so well that after a while people thought, they work so well in the Middle East, they must speak Arabic. Um, objectified in terms of an enhanced body of work and institutionalised as kudos, awards, prizes, promotions, being asked to speak and comment. Um, Just before I left, Michael Ware had been um, profiled on two... He'd been in two separate profiles on Australian Story, which is the big uh, um, character documentary about his war exploits. Fixers build up their embodied capital capital through having constant employment and through the status of people that they've been working for. So they can always go and say, well, I worked for CNN on this story or I worked with the BBC on this story. Their objectified capital can be their authored work, but often this is too dangerous to claim. And the same for institutionalised capital. Some go on to other producing roles and even some of them on to correspondent roles. Not in television, but there are instances of um, fixers going on to be correspondents for the New York Times and places and newspapers. So, I'm sorry about this. This is a very dense PowerPoint. Anyway, the significance at a micro level is that fixers allow correspondents the ability to operate abroad in the same way as they would back home. For example, if your correspondent comes from Kensington, they're not really going to understand life in Tottenham, but they're going to write about it anyway. And I suppose that when you use a fixer in another country, 
They may not know what life is like in the equivalent of Tottenham in their country, but they can access it. They can get the correspondent there, so the correspondent has the same kind of access in a foreign country as they would have here. So they've got a, a window onto local stories, etc. But as globalized professionals and English speakers, they may also provide a similar filter on the news gathering as correspondents do back home. It's not so much the voice of the street as the voice of the people like us. For example, when I spoke to a correspondent at ITN, he told me about stories he'd worked on with a fixer in Afghanistan where you know, the fixer said, let's go and find out what those motherfuckers in the prison, those suicide bombers think. Now, that is not what your average person in Afghanistan talks like or thinks like, but these are the people that they're employing, and they employ them because they understand the media, they understand what's necessary. Another correspondent told me, oh, it's great, when I go back to Afghanistan, um, the people I've been working with for a while, they now know the kind of stories they want, and they can find me that woman MP that doesn't wear a burqa, and they can find me this, and they can find me that. And she thinks it's wonderful that they've learned that, but in a way they're simply delivering her what, you know, in a mirrored version, what they know that she wants. So it's not like you're necessarily opening up to different groups of people in Afghanistan, but you are prioritizing the kinds of stories that those correspondents want anyway. So correspondents like to work with people who understand what they would call Western objective ways of news gathering. They have a sense of humor and they're people that you can trust, but all of this adds up to people who share common outlooks. Fixes are very influential and there were countless instances, as I mentioned, of changing the courses of stories. But essentially, it is a power relationship. No matter how sharing it might be, the capital is all in the fixer's, in the reporter's hands. But the editorial work of the fixer does need to be um, better appreciated, understood, and credited where possible. At a macro level, the cheapness of the ad hoc hiring means it is a perfect political economic solution to gaps in resources. It demonstrates trends in multinationals towards localized hiring, and localized exploitation as well. The relationship between these two leads to a localized interruption of the usual Western flow of news, I believe. I think that these people help get local stories onto the agenda, but it does represent a globalized vision, as I've said. It doesn't threaten the social order in any way. Fixes are becoming more important, especially in places like Iraq. They can be a missing link in the chain of recruitment that is seeing international organizations recruiting more local journalists. It will be much cheaper than correspondence. And people like Hamilton and Jenna and Sandbrook have written about this. Um, there is an interesting email knocking around at the moment um, to do with the BBC's new delivering quality first changes, which basically mean that in future they are going to be recruiting local people to do the corresponding which means fewer overheads, no expensive bureaus, no you know, um, education for children that needs to be paid up front, etc. All of those expensive costs would disappear if you employed local people. And you know, there are also other reasons to do this. You could say that in a post-globalized world, surely the best people to tell the stories are the people from those countries. And this is one of the debates that's been knocking around since Richard Sandbrook's um, book. However, if foreign correspondents disappear, national audiences will lose out on a perspective that also shows relevance closer to home in context. 
And if you take, for example, the Australian ABC, they've always talked about their news gathering as being international news through Australian eyes. They still see a value in it, in it being explained by people who also understand the country from where it's broadcast. And CBC does the same in its charter. It says we must prioritise national audiences. Very few convergent media platforms are, in fact, completely transnational. And narratives that are divorced of local meanings, you know, the kind that you often get in CNN World Report, etc., can be bland sometimes or irrelevant because they're so divorced from, from the people seeing them. For the time being, the elite foreign correspondent is still alive in some places and, with the help of the fixer, is continuing to seek out exclusive stories that distinguishes itself from homogenous agency material. Adding value will be an argument for keeping expensive overseas bureaus. Thank you.